Rabotai, Tariyag Mitzvot. We're up to 105. Mitzvot, Nitinat, Mahasita Shekel. Positive commandment that everybody from Israel, 20 years and above, uh, whether rich or poor, has to give the shi'ur of a half a shekel. As the Pasuk says in the beginning of Parashat Kitisa, Perek Lamed Pasuk Yud Gimal, Ze Yitenu, Kol Ha'over, Ala Pekudim, Mahasit Ashekel. The money was collected, was placed in a certain treasury in the Beit HaMikdash. What did they use the money for? So the Chinuch tells us it was used for all public korbanot. For example, purchasing the daily korban tamid, the musafim, for example, Shabbatot and Yamim Tovim, uh, any korban that came for the Sibur includes Nesachim, the wine libations. Somebody had to pay for the salt that was used in order to put on every korban. That also came from the monies of Ma'asita Shekel. The wood to fuel the Mizbeach, that's called Atzeh HaMa'aracha. Lechem Panim to pay for the showbread, also to pay for the family that actually made the showbread, uh, also to pay for the Omer, the Shteh Lechem, the breads that were brought on Shavuot. Somebody had to fund the Para Aduma, the Sa'ira Mishtaleach, the goat that was sent off the mountain on Yom Kippur, as well as the red crimson string that was placed around its horns. These are some of the things that the Mahasita Shekel would pay for. Now, the reason why God would give us such a mitzvah, so the Chinuch uh, writes, Ratzah Kadosh Baruch Hu letovat kol Yisrael. So God wanted to do something that would benefit all Yisrael. Ve'lezakotam she'yad kulam sheveh. God wanted us to have an equal share in the korbanot. And uh, in this case over here, there's no difference between a poor man and a rich man. And that would be a great zechut, he says, where collectively we're all coming together to do one mitzvah. And therefore it'll give us a great zechut, lezikaron, lefne Hashem. Now some of the laws that surround the mitzvah, as we learned in the beginning of Masechet Shekalim, uh, they would announce the collection on Rosh Chodesh Adar. Of course, the fiscal year of the Beit HaMikdash is from Nisan to Nisan, but they collect the monies one month before. Even the poorest man is obligated to give Mahasita Shekel. If he can't afford it, he has to sell his clothes in order to get the amount. The law is that you're not allowed to pay Ma'asita Shekel in installments. It has to be paid in one shot. Furthermore, everybody's Hayav in Ma'asita Shekel. Kohanim, Leviim, Yisraelim, Gerim, converts, as well as freed slaves. Ladies are exempt. Children are exempt. However, if they give, we can accept it. Goyim are exempt, and if they give it, we're not allowed to accept it. Of course, this halakha applies only when there's a Beit HaMikdash. However, it applies to all Jews. 
whether the Jews are in Eretz Yisrael or even in Chutz La'aretz, they would have to send in their Ma'asit HaShekel. Now, if somebody transgresses and does not send in his Ma'asit HaShekel, not only is he mevatel a mitzvat aseh, his punishment is great because he's poresh men asibur, he's separated from the congregation, and then the Ainuk says a big chedush, ve'eno bichlal kaparatan. He does not get kapara, he's not part of the korbanot. So you don't pay, you don't get the benefits. No free ride over here in the Beit HaMikdash. Now the Inuk tells us that while today we do not have this mitzvah, I quote, Ve'achshav nahagu kol Yisrael lezecher adavar to commemorate and to remember this great mitzvah, lekro bebet ha-keneset bechol shana v'shana parashat kitisa b'shabbat the custom is that we read Parashat Kitisa on the Shabbat, which comes before Rosh Chodesh Adar. We refer to that as Shabbat Parashat Shekalim. The Chiruk does not mention the Menhag that we have today to actually give some money. That's brought down in the Ramah at the end of the laws of Purim. Finally, a great Hiddush from Rabbi Kiva Eger in Siman Kuvav based on the Sefer Chinuch. Sefer Chinuch clearly told us that ladies are exempt, which implies to us that since they're exempt, so therefore they really do not have a chilek in the korbanot. And if they don't have a chilek in the korbanot, while well, we know that ladies have to pray shahrit and menha or arbit, that they have to pray because tefillah is mercy, and ladies need mercy just as much as the men do. However, when it comes to, for example, tefillah musaf, musaf only corresponds to korban. So says Rebbe that since ladies are not part of the korban, after all, they don't have to give ma'azit shekel. so therefore he says, from here we learn that ladies are exempt from praying tefillah musaf. That is not a halakha shi'ur, Ayan in the halachot to see what we said, but the ma'aseh from this halakha of ladies being exempt from ma'asita shekel, at least with Kiva Ege learned the halakha, to exempt from tefilat musaf. Finally, we should point out that uh, we could deduce from this mitzvah that any mitzvah that's done collectively has an extra power. So, for example, in the synagogues, when we make collections and the synagogue participates as uh, a group, as the Chinook said, Lehaalot zikaron kulam al beyahad. That it causes God to remember us in a favorable way, not only because we're doing a mitzvah, because of the unity that we're all getting together and we're sharing and participating in the mitzvah. Amen. Amen. Rabotai, we're learning the Taryag mitzvot, and we are up to the 106th mitzvah. Mitzvat kiddush yadayim v'raglayim b'sha'at avodah. That's a positive commandment that's on the Kohanim to rinse their hands and their feet anytime they're entering the Hechal and they're going to do service in the Bet HaMikdash. The Pasuk is in Shemot Perek Lamed, Pesukim Yud Tet and Chaf, Verachatsu Aharon Ubanav Memenu 
את ידיהם ואת רגליהם בבואם אל אוהל מועד לשרת או בגשתם אל המזבח. So the Torah comes and tells us that Aaron and his children must wash from the kiyor, from the sink, their hands and feet when they come in to serve. That the Chinook writes that the shortage of this mitzvah, once again, lehagdil kevod habayit, in order to establish the grandeur of the Beit HaMikdash. And therefore, it wouldn't be worthy for Kwanim to come in and do the service without cleaning their hands. Now, the Kohen does not have to wash his hands between each service. He just has to wash his hands in the morning. Now, we see that obviously this is not a hygienic item because even if his hands are clean and even if his hands are, are uh, you know, uh, purified, doesn't matter. But it's just the kavod of the bayit that when the Kohen comes to serve initially, when he washes his hands, so that makes an impression how important the avodah is. Now, of course, he's able to work the whole entire day on one washing, including the night. So long as he doesn't sleep in between and he doesn't go to the bathroom in between or he doesn't have a seah hada. The only time the Kohen must wash more than one time in a day, mandatorily, is on Yom Kippurim. The Rav writes, Biglal Shel Yom. Because of the severity of the day. <clears throat> now some of the laws regarding the Kohen and washing. Number one, if the Kohen leaves the wall of the Azara, <clears throat> when he comes back, he needs to wash again. Even if he washed his hands on one morning, his hands become pasul overnight. That's the pasul called lina. Even though the Kohen did not go to sleep, even though he stayed up all night, Yadayim Nifsalim or Nifsalot Belina. Now over here, the Chinuch throws in a language which is very strange. At this point of the Chinuch, he says, Panav Yadav Viraglav. The Chinuch throws in that is a mitzvah for the Kohen in the morning to wash not only Yadav v'raglav, but also Panav, his face. The Minhat Chinuch writes that this is very hard to understand. Where do we see that the Kohen has to wash his face? And therefore he says, Pashut shezeh ta'ut ha-ma'atik. He said that the one was writing this Chinuch over, obviously there was a ta'ut sofer, and he says, that is not the case. There's no obligation for the Kohen to wash his face. Furthermore, it must be washed from a special uh, sink called the Kiyor. And the water must be poured on the Kohen as opposed to him sticking his hands in the cup. According to the Chinuch, by Netilat Yadayim, regular that we do, he holds that it's okay to stick your hands in the cup. But the Netilat Yadayim of the Kohanim, it must be that the cup... They, they pour over him. Now, how much water does the kiyor have to have in order for it to be kasher? So the law is it has to have enough water at all times in order to pour on four kohanim minimum. So the Hinuk says, Aaron is one, 
Banab is who? Al-Azar, Itamar. That's three. Upinehas Imahim. And Pinehas was with them. So therefore, at all times, it has to be a minimum of four. The waters can come either from a mikveh or me'mayan from a spring. The waters also of the sink become pasul if they were left overnight. How does the Kohen make the Kiddushadayim v'raglayim? He takes his right hand and puts it on his right foot and he stands there, obviously on one foot, and they pour the water and then he puts his left hand on his left foot and they pour the water on it as well. The law of Rechitzah must be done standing. If the Kohen does the Rechitzah sitting, lo yatzah, because the washing is considered a shirut, is considered a service. And the Pasuk says, la'amod le'sharet. And therefore the Kohen must be standing. Noheget bizman habayit. Obviously this is a law that only applies the times of the Beit HaMikdash. Bezichre kehuna bilvad. Only to the male Kohanim. Ve'over aleha. If the Kohen transgresses, ve'lo kidesh, and he did not wash his hands and feet, ve'avad, and he served, ve'lo kidush, hayav mita bideshamayim. So you see, it's a very, very severe punishment. It's not that you, know, you just didn't wash your hands, big deal. So no, it is a big deal. That this is already punishable by death, bideshamayim, ve'avodato pesula. And the avodah that he does is rendered unfit. This law applies ben the kohen idiot, ben the kohen gadol. Doesn't matter which level kohen. Of course, today the nitilagadam that we do for bread has no uh, uh, connection to this nitilagadam. The closest nitilagadam that we have to this would be the nitilagadam that we make in the morning, according to some of the opinions that the reason why we're making nitilagadam in the morning is like a kohen when he comes in to serve. So therefore he has to wash his hands. So therefore we're like Kohanim today that are coming to the temple, to the Beit Knesset, not to serve. So therefore we wash our hands with that kavanah. So there is a symbolism today in Itilat Yadayim Shacharit that corresponds this mitzvah. But again, that's only a zecher. That's not the real mitzvah. Obviously there's other reasons also why we make it. Again, this mitzvah is a positive commandment on Kohanim daily to wash their hands and feet as they come into the temple. Baruch Adonai Amen. All right, Rabotai, Tariyag Mitzvot, and we are uh, up to the 107th Mitzvah, and that is the Mitzvah of anointing Kohanim, Gedolim, and kings with the special oil, the Shemin HaMishha, the oil of anointment. Uh, It's a positive commandment. The Pasuk is in Perek Lamed, Pasuk Chavhe in the book of Shemot. Oto Shemen Mishhat Kodesh. So the Torah tells us, first of all, you have to make the oil. And then after you make the oil, so then it's used for anointing. And the Chinuch's language is, Shiyem Muchan Bo Kol Kohen So the Mitzvah is that it should be prepared, the oil should be accessible, that any time there's a new Kohen Gadol, that he can be uh, anointed with it. Vechen, not all kings, some kings, those are the ones from the Davidic dynasty, Malchut Bet David, they also must be anointed with this special oil. Furthermore, they also uh, anointed the vessels of the Bet HaMikdash. Initially, uh, in order to sanctify them, the Kilim needed to have uh, an anointment with Shem and Mishha. The Hadush over there is, 
is that once it's anointed the first time, all the subsequent vessels do not have to be uh, anointed with shemen and mishcha. Uh, the way they become uh, appropriated and holy is by using them. They become kadosh ba'avodah. So basically what happens is the first kelim of the Beit HaMikdash are the only ones that were sanctified b'shem and mishcha, And from that Kedusha, all the other subsequent kelim become Kadosh. The Pasuk is <coughs> that the original Kedusha, the kelim of the Beit HaMikdash will last for generations. Namely, that you don't have to uh, sanctify them with Shem and Mishcha. The shortest of the Mishvah is, again, Chinook's language, Kohen Gadol, when you anoint the Kohen Gadol with the oil, it's an action, So it, it makes an impression on the Kohen Gadol and on us. Because the Inyan of pouring the oil usually is done to kings, this was a custom that was done to officers and princes, so to the hashivut of what the Kohen Gadol is doing, so we treat him like uh, nobility. Uh, furthermore, the Chinuch writes that the Shemina Mishra always has to be ready and available in the Beit HaMikdash. Why? And he says a mashal, he says because the Beit HaMikdash is a house, and Hashem is the Baalabayit of the house. And when you go to somebody's house, if he's a Hashuv guy, he always has equipment. He always has materials. You ask him, you have this? Yeah, you have that? He, he, he never runs out of stuff. He has all the important things always readily accessible. Uh, you know, respectable uh, host or uh, owner. All the items that are needed, he has. You don't have to wait, oh, let me get it. I have to go buy it. So therefore, it's, it's important that the Beit HaMikdash, which is the house of God, has the Shemina Mishcha readily accessible. How do you make this special oil? So the Torah actually in Kitisa gives us the ingredients. I'll just go through it very quickly. There's a spice called Mor. There's a spice called Kinnamon. There's a spice called Kida. So you take 500 shekel weight of these spices and mix them up. So another besamim that's called kene bosim, you take 250 shekel of that. All of these are found in the islands around uh, India. Oil, special oil called shemen zayat, olive oil, they would actually take 12 log, which uh, the measurement is a heen, and then they would cook it up, and between all these items with evaporation, ultimately it would lead to a mixture of 12, uh, 12 logs. So there was some evaporation in the cooking. So therefore, that's the measure of Hashem and Amishcha. Ultimately, it's 12 log. There's a remez to this, because the Pasuk says, Shemin Mishchat Kodesh Zeli. The word Ze, Zayin is 12, which represents the 12 log, which is the final measurement of the Shemin. Obviously, this mitzvah is no heget at the time of the Beit HaMikdash, Interestingly enough, the Chinuch learns that it's not a mitzvah on anybody individually. The mitzvah actually is on the tzibur in order to make the, uh, make the oil. Now, there is a big question regarding this mitzvah. The pasuk tells us that the shemen and mishcha 
was ledorotechem, was for the generations. What does it mean? So the Hakamim explained that when Moshe Rabbeinu, who's the first one that made the Shemina Mishcha, his Shemina Mishcha lasted forever. Miraculous, never ran out. So if that's the case, how could the Chinuch write this as one of the Tariyag Mitzvot? To make the Shemina Mishcha. You don't have to make the Shemina Mishcha. It should say that this was a mitzvah that was a once-in-a-lifetime item. Moshe Rabbeinu did it. And, uh, and finished. So how is the Chinuch including uh, making the Shemina Mishcha as one of the Tariyag? So one of the simple answers that they say is that if you look at the Chinuch's golden language, he doesn't only say it's a mitzvah to... To make the shemen amishcha, his language was that it should be there. It seems that there's a mitzvah not only to make it. Well, Moshe Rabbeinu did that already for us, but there's a mitzvah to watch it, to have it, to have it in our uh, possession, to make sure that it's in the uh, thank you, to make sure it's in the house. So therefore, that will be the chenuk's understanding of this mitzvah. You have to make sure that it's. Uh, that doesn't get uh, destroyed, that uh, somebody's uh, protecting it, somebody's watching it. So when the need comes, you know, oh, the Shemin HaMashah is over there. Go take it, go anoint the Kohen Gadol, go anoint a med, it should be readily accessible. So therefore it comes out, according to the Chinuch, while there might not be a, 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 a technical mitzvah to make the Shemin HaMashah, because it was made already, but again, the mitzvah is Lahakin V'Lishmon. Unfortunately, there's another mitzvah that uh, doesn't exist in our times. It's a Beit HaMikdash item. But Bezat Hashem B'merabi Yamenu Yibane Beit HaMikdash. And then we'll be able to uh, go back to anoint Kohanim Gidolim as well as Menachem Mashiach. Amen. Okay, Rabotai. We are continuing uh, the study of the Tariyag Mitzvot. And today we are up to number 108. <coughs> that is a negative commandment. So yesterday we learned about the special anointing oil that uh, was exclusively used for Kohanim, Gedolim, and kings from Malchut Bet David. So now this mitzvah says that there's a negative commandment, a prohibition against using this on strangers. Uh, so we can only use it for, again, Kohanim and kings. The Pasuk says in Shemot, Perek Lamed, Pasuk Lamed Bet, Al Besar Adam Lo Yisach. That on a regular person, uh, outside Kohanim and Melachim, Lo Yisach, you should not anoint. Now the shortage of the mitzvah is very interesting the way the Chinook says it. So number one, Lagdalat Abayit, like we learned, in order to glorify the house of Hashem, and therefore... Commoners should not use this uh, special oil. Only the chosen ones, the Kohanim and the kings. And what happens when something is exclusive and cannot be used by most people and can only used by certain people, what happens to that item? It becomes endeared by the people. Which means once already you can't have it and once already it's you know, forbidden to most people. <clears throat> so now most people have a, uh, a higher uh, a craving or higher respect for that item. Ki gadol, uh, the erech, the value of devarim, 
בלב רע בבני אדם לפי מיעוט המצאתם אצלם. Which means the less accessible something is, the more rare an item is, or the more uh, you know, remote its usage is, so the more valuable it becomes. So therefore, this becomes a commodity. Not everybody's able to use this commodity. It can only be used by Kohanim and Melachim. So therefore, it becomes more elevated in the eyes of the people. But if everybody can go to the store and buy Shemina Mishcha and put it on themselves and uh, anoint themselves, So therefore it cheapens the item in the eyes of the people. Then it loses the whole purpose of trying to elevate the status of uh, those that are able to be uh, uh, anointed. So that is the, uh, the logic of the Chinuch. To become precious and endear it in the eyes of the people. Fine. Some of the laws of the mitzvah. This only applies to the Shem and Amishcha that Moshe Rabbeinu made, as we learned yesterday. Moshe Rabbeinu made the original Shem and Amishcha, and the Chinuch writes, V'kabbalah biyadenu shenes na'asabo sheyaspik le'olam. There was a miracle that happened with the Shem and Amishcha of Moshe Rabbeinu, that from the time that he made it, it lasted and will last forever. Therefore, this mitzvah is noheget, it applies in every place, at all times, because the Shem and HaMishcha is still around. So if somebody finds the Shem and HaMishcha Moshe Rabbeinu and puts it on his body, male or female will be transgressing. The punishment over here is Hayav Karet. <coughs> Serious punishment. A Karet punishment if he puts at least a Kezayit's worth of the Shem and HaMishcha. Of course he does it Peshogeg, so he's Hayav a Korban Hatat. According to the Chinuch, uh, while other kings are not allowed to be anointed with Shemen and Mishcha, uh, they are anointed with a different type of oil. It's called Shemen Aparsimon. Aparsimon would be like an uh, uh, aromatic type of besamim uh, oil. I think it's called balsam. And uh, therefore, that's what they use. So then the question we have over here is a very strong question. According to most of the Shonim, Shaul HaMelech, the first Jewish king, was indeed anointed with Shemen HaMishcha. The question is, how could that be? According to the Chinuch, we just said it's only for Malchut Bedavid. And the Adraba, if you put it on a stranger, it's Hayuf Karet. So how are they allowed to anoint King Shaul uh, with the Shemen HaMishcha? So someone explained very simply that once you start anointing kings from David, from then on, only Malchut David gets Shemin HaMishcha. But until you anoint the first uh, king from the Davidic dynasty, you could anoint anybody with Shemin HaMishcha. So it was since Shaul was the first king before any king of Malchut David, they were able to use the Shemin HaMishcha. But the Me'idi has a beautiful explanation. He says, why was Shaul indeed chosen to be the first king, why didn't they choose anybody from uh, Shevet Yehuda, who is really the family of the kingdom? And he says, because at that time, when the Jewish people asked for a king, nobody was worthy from the Shevet of Yehuda. So there was nobody really suitable to be the king from Yehuda, and the most suited person in Klai Yisrael was indeed Shaul HaMelech. As the Pasuk says, Meshechmo u'ma'ala gavoa mikol ha'am. 
that he was a towering figure above and beyond all the other people. Now, it's true, Shaul was anointed to be what the Me'idi calls Melech Arai, a temporary king, but he was filling a spot of Malchut ben David. He was a replacement since there was no better king in Sheva Yehuda, so therefore Shaul was considered taking the place of Malchut Yehuda until somebody would become worthy. So therefore his kingdom is considered part of Malchut Yehuda because he was taking the place of Malchut Yehuda and therefore he was representing, let's say, Malchut Yehuda. So therefore according to that, he considered uh, uh, eligible for the Shimon HaMishcha and that's why uh, they anointed him with the special oil. Nonetheless, again, this is something that uh, the Chinuch is teaching us an important lesson that things become cheapened in our eyes when they become more accessible, more usable, and something that is more uh, rare and more uh, 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 you know, special becomes uh, elevated in our eyes. And therefore, to keep the Shem and Amishha, uh, you know, uh, its value, and for those that are anointed by it, their value high in our eyes, the Torah does not allow anybody else uh, in order for them to uh, anoint themselves. Baruch Okay, Rabotai, Sefer HaChinuch, Tariyag Mitzvot, and we're up to today number 109. And that is that we're not allowed to replicate the Shemin HaMishchat, negative commandment. The Pasuk says, Umatkunto lo ta'asu. It is a Pasuk in Shemot chapter Lamid, Pasuk Lamid Bet, the word matkunto means in its uh, measurements. You're not allowed to make the Shemin HaMishcha in the same quantity as they did it in the times of Moshe Rabbeinu. We know that word matkunto, if you remember when the Jews were making the bricks in Mitzrayim, it calls them matkonet halivanim. Uh, so the uh, the amount of bricks that they would make on a daily basis. So matkunto means that you're not allowed to make the shemen a mishcha with the same amount of spices and the ratio, like we learned yesterday, uh, that would be a negative commandment. The chinuch comes along and tells us why. It sounds like from the chinuch, the reason why it's forbidden to do it, because it's not necessary. Because if you remember, we learned in yesterday's mitzvah, the Hainuch repeats it again today, that there's a tradition, that there was a miracle, that from the time that Moshe Rabbeinu Alav Ashlom made the first Shemin HaMishcha, there's still, uh, it's still around. It never uh, depleted. After they uh, anointed all the Kohanim and all the vessels of the Beit HaMikdash and all the kings, none of it became deficient. It's still complete as it was. So therefore, there's no need actually to make a, another Shemin uh, HaMishcha. We actually use that one, La'atid Lavo. So therefore, uh, the Torah is coming to tell us that it is forbidden to replicate the Shemin HaMishcha. It applies at all times. And even today, if somebody would find the Shemin HaMishcha of Moshe Rabbeinu, or I should say, if somebody would replicate the um, the Shemin uh, HaMishcha, as it's uh, prescribed in the Torah, it applies even today, all places, it applies to male and female alike. If somebody actually does go make the Shemin HaMishcha, 
he has transgressed a great sin, the punishment is karet. And if a person does it uh, by mistake, b'shogeg, he must bring a korban hatat. Now one uh, analysis just on this mitzvah. One of the spices that they bring, or they put into the Shemana Mishcha, is called morderor. What is this morderor? So Harambam in Hilchot Klem Mikdash, in Perik Aleph Alecha Gimal, tells us that the morderor actually is what we would call today musk. Musk. Now what is this musk? Where does it come from? So Rambam tells us it comes actually from the blood of a non-kosher or impure animal. Grows uh, in uh, India. And this blood actually comes from like a protrusion from the stomach of the animal. And the blood is collected into that protrusion. And over time it congeals. And during the summer months when the animal wants to scratch itself, because it's very hot, so it goes to the thorns or the bushes and scratches itself. So what happens is this little protrusion opens up and the congealed blood comes, comes out and sticks to the, to the bushes. And they gather it from over there. And it seems it has a certain uh, aroma to it. And they add it to the Shemina Mishcha. That's according to Harambam. The Ra'avad rejects this uh, flatly and says, impossible that they would put something that by nature is not uh, a kasher. Blood is something that by nature is not kasher. Specifically, you're taking it from an animal that's tameh. It's hard to imagine that that would be part of the shemena mishcha, which would be an integral ingredient in anointing kohanim and kings. He says it can't be. So he learns that it's a type of herb or a type of tree that has a aromatic uh, smell. The Kesef Mishneh defends Maimonides and says that once the blood dries up, so it's like dust, and therefore it's not considered Tameh anymore, it loses its status, and therefore uh, Harambam would hold that they actually added that musk or that blood or that Shemen Amor or Morderor to the actual spices. But for our purposes, Rabotai, the lesson today is there is a negative commandment. If you indeed get all these spices together and you would make it bimatkunto with the same measurements, so one would be transgressing a sin. It's interesting that it's such a uh, federal crime, according to the Torah, that one would be subject to the punishment of karet. So again, uh, this is the mitzvah of We are continuing the study of the Tariyak Mitzvot. And we are up to the 110th Mitzvah. It's a negative commandment. That we're not allowed to duplicate and make the concoction of the spices of the ketoret. Again, we're talking here where you're making it in the same ratio that they made it with the same measurements at the time of the Beta Mikdash. Furthermore, the Isud over here is not only to make it, but with intention to use it for personal use. The two Pesukim that we learned this lab from is 
Perek Lamed, Pesukim Lamed Zayin and Lamed Chet. I quote, Bematkunto lo ta'asu lachem. In its measurement and its weight, you should not make for yourselves. Ish, asher chamoha leharriyahba. If a person makes it for himself as it is, in order to smell from it, which means he makes for personal use, so then already he transgresses this isur. The shortish of this mitzvah, the Hinuk says, look at what I wrote at mitzvah 108. Over there he told us a very, very obvious principle, and that is that the more rare uh, something is, <coughs> the more precious, precious it is in the eyes of the people. If you have a certain, uh, you know, perfume that everybody can get, so therefore it becomes cheap in the eyes of the people. But there's only two bottles of it, so therefore it becomes endeared to the people. So if everybody could make the ketoret in their backyard and sprinkle it on themselves, nobody smells like the ketoret. So when you go to the Beit HaMikdash and you smell it, you say, big deal, I have three bottles of the ketoret at home. So therefore in order to keep the ketoret special and precious in the eyes of the people, you have to keep it exclusive. Now, some of the mitzvot that apply to it, the dinim, if somebody, for example, makes the ketoret for learning purposes, he does not transgress the isur. Or he makes the ketoret in order to sell it to the Beit HaMikdash. Now, the lashon of the chinuch is lemochra, although some change that text because you can't sell it because you'll be having hana'ah. So some change it lemosra, to give it over as a gift to the Beit HaMikdash, then already one would be exempt. If somebody makes even a partial amount of the ketoret, so long as it's following the ratio, which means you don't have to make the full measure, but you make it <clears throat> proportionately with the same measurements, so then one transgresses this isud as well. Now this isud applies in all places at all times which means even today, if somebody would get together the 11 spices of the ketoret and make it, one would transgress it. It is equal transgression to male and female as well. Now, if somebody did actually make the ketoret and smelt it on purpose, benefited, he is hayav karet, serious punishment. And if he did it by mistake, he's hayav to bring a korban hatat. However, it's very important to note that the Hinuch says that if a person just smells the actual ketoret that they have in the Beit HaMikdash and he enjoys it, he does not transgress the Isud and is not Chayav Karet. However, if he smells it and enjoys it, he is considered benefiting from Hikdesh. And therefore he has different problems. Now the question then is, if that's the case, we have to discuss for a moment how is it possible then to go to the Beit HaMikdash? I mean, after all, you're going to smell the Ketoret. The Gemara actually says you could smell the pungency of the Ketoret all the way from the Beit HaMikdash to Yericho. So therefore, how is it possible then you're telling me that if you smell the Ketoret and you get some benefit from it, you're not Hayat Karet, but you're going to be Oved Nehene uh, from Mikdash. So the Mepharshim explained over here that it's specifically talking where you're smelling and benefiting it at the time that the mitzvah is being done. 
which means before the ketoret actually is burnt, which means before the smoke goes up. That's considered the time of the mitzvah. Therefore, it's considered more el dish. However, after the ketoret went up, the smoke went up, and there's still a smell at that point, the mitzvah was done. There's no me'ilah at that point. <clears throat> However, it's still forbidden, Nalaka says, to go out of your way and smell the ketoret after the mitzvah was done. And the isud, as the mefarshim say, is lehit karev. You're not allowed to go out of your way to come close. However, if a person is just walking down the street and he smells the ketoret, he didn't go out of his way, there is no isud whatsoever. As a matter of fact, we learned in the Gemara Yoma, page 39, that the brides in Jerusalem never had to wear besamim because they had the beauty smell from the ketoret. So what do we have to have the smell? They're benefiting. They didn't go out of their way. So long as the smell is there and one is just walking the street and enjoys it, that's okay. We're talking about somebody that goes out of his way to the Beit HaMikdash in order to smell it at the time that the mitzvah is being done or even after, then already he has an isud. But again, for our purposes, the isud today is not only to smell it, but it's to make it in the same proportions for personal use. Baruch Amen. We continue our study of the Tariyag Mitzvot. We're up to 111. And that is not to eat or drink anything that's connected to a sacrifice to Abu Zarah. As the Pesukim uh, read in chapter 34, Lamidalet, Pesukim Yudbet, Tetetva, Vishamir Lecha. By the way, we know that's a lot to say whenever it says Vishamir Lecha. That's the language of a negative commandment. Lest you make a Brit, a covenant with the Guim, the idolaters of the land. They worship to their gods. And they will call you. And they're going to ask you to eat from their sacrifices. But I warned you, do not eat from the Tekrobet of Abu Dazara. The shortage is obvious. But Yolam wants to distance us uh, in every way possible and to remove us from any uh, vestige of Abu Zarah and anything that is connected to it. Now there's a few laws that the Hinuch mentions regarding this mitzvah. Number one, anything that was brought as a sacrifice to the Abu Zarah is forbidden even something so insignificant like salt, if they sprinkled it or water would be forbidden as well. The Hinuch includes in this lab the Yisud of Yayin Nesech, which is wine that was libated by the Goyim to the Abu Dazara. And from the Torah law, uh, the uh, Yayin Nesech is Asur Bemashehu, even a drop, which is one of the only laws in the Torah. Uh, that is forbidden at such a small shi'ud. As the Pasuk says, Velo yidbak me'uma That you're not allowed to take even a me'uma. Me'uma means anything from the Avodah Zarah. So if a person would drink yayin nesek, that's wine that was actually libated to the Avodah Zarah, uh, he would drink even a drop, he would get malkut, minat Torah. 
this point, the Chinuch then tells us about another type of wine that's called Stam Yenam. Stam Yenam is the regular wine of the Guim that you don't know if they actually poured it to the Avodah Zarah. That's Asur Midrabanan. And if a person drank it, if he eats worth of that type of wine, he would get Malkut Midrabanan. Now, we have other things that are also Stam. Stam Tzelamim, a Stam idol. When you see an idol in the house of the Goy, you must assume that it was for Avodah Zarah, and therefore it is Asur. And then the Chinuch tells us that we have a third level, besides Yayin Nesech, and besides Stam Yenam, we have what's called Yayin Shel Yisrael Shenagabo Goy. It's Jewish wine. You know you didn't worship it for Avodah Zarah, it's your wine. But a Goy touched it. The rabbis came along as well, because of the Chumrah of Avodah Zarah and their concerns, and they forbade it, the Hana'ah. Furthermore, the Gemara says that so much so the rabbis distance us from any benefit from Avodah Zarah, that even if you were hired to break all the barrels that have in it Yayin Nesich, and they're paying you a hundred bucks to break all the barrels, you're not allowed to benefit from the hundred bucks. So, why? You're destroying the, the Avodah Zarah. Because for one moment you want it to be Kayam so you can break it, so you can get paid. So therefore, since you have a Hana'ah that it's there, so you can break it to get paid, you're benefiting from Avodah Zarah. And therefore, the rabbi said that uh, payment is a Hana'ah. It's no Heget, this mitzvah, obviously in every place, at all times, male and female alike. And as we said, if a person drinks even a Tipav Yayin Nesich, He's going to get Malkut. Now here we have a, uh, a rarity, probably the only time in the book of the Sefer Anuk that the following happens. We have a tremendous Mahloket between Harambam, Maimonides, and Ramban, Nachmanides. They all agree that Yayin Nesech is Asur in a Torah. The Mahloket is from where do you learn it from? Harambam learns it from a pasuk, not in the pasuk we just quoted, but actually a pasuk in Ha'azinu. The pasuk says, Yishtu yen nesicham, asher chelev zevachemo yochelu. And it's comparing yayin nesech to the korbanot of the goyim. And Rambam says, based on the Talmud, that just like the korbanot of the goyim were asur, so too yayin nesech is asur as well. Uh, Ramban argues, Ramban says, no, we don't learn from that pasuk Yayin Nesich, although it mentions Yayin Nesich explicitly, he says we learn it from this pasuk. When the pasuk says, it's including all takrobet avodah zarah, whether it's actually a sacrifice or wine or whatever it is. Throughout the book called Sefer HaChinuch, he follows Harambam's count of the mitzvot and the sources. And then the Chinuch admits I wrote all my mitzvot based on Hanambam, except this one. And this one he claims that the Ramban makes more sense. And he says for the simple reason, because in Rambam's pasuk for Yayin Nesech, it does not mention any love. It just tells us the reality, that they bring korbanot avodazara, including wine. But it does not say that it's Isud Lav. However, in this Pasuk it says, Hisham Lecha. And therefore he says, it makes more sense 
uh, to learn it from here. About ayah shapasuk azeh naam meod lerosh b'menu ayan v'od yeshbo azara hishamet. So therefore, the chinuch in an exceptional mitzvah veered away from shitat harambam and includes the isud of yayin nesek in the hundred and eleventh mitzvah. Now we didn't get to the end of the book, but he writes that this is the only time that he did it. So therefore that was an anomaly of the 111th mitzvah. For us, again, these laws clearly still apply today. Uh, the laws of Yayin Nesek, Stam Yenam, and Yayin Shinagabo Goy. Baruch Olam. Amen. All right, Rabotai Tariyag Mitzvot. We're up to number 112. And that's the mitzvah of Shivitata Aretz, Vishnata Shemitah. That we have to uh, let the land rest, can't work the land in the year of Shemitah. Uh, that's the seventh year of the cycle. Pasuks in Lamidalid, Perik Lamidal, Pasuk of Alep, Beharish, Ubakatsir, Tishbot. Which, according to the way we're understanding it, Harish is plowing, Katsir is um, uh, cutting, the, cutting the, the, the product, cutting the, uh, the wheat. So that would be the harvesting. So that would be, Torah says, Tishpot. Now, we already explained this mitzvah already. If you go back to the 84th mitzvah, the Chinook over there talked about the principles of why the Torah would tell us that we have to leave all the fruits in the field hefker and let everything go ownerless. So it's the same reason that applies over here. He says, Uchvar katavti kol mushlam lemala Beseder im kesef talveh. Now this is a, it's a hidush in this mitzvah. It's got really nothing to do with the mitzvah, but it's a hidush nonetheless. The chinook says, listen, I talked about this mitzvah already. Go look what I wrote in parashat im kesef talveh. Now, we do not have a parashah in the Torah called im kesef talveh. We have a pasuk like that, but it's not a parashah. It's not a name of a parashah. The name of the parashah that Imkesef Talveh is in is called Parashat Mishpatim. But the Sefer Ha'inuch does not call the Parashat Mishpatim. He says, go look what I wrote in Seder Imkesef Talveh. So it's important to know, and I will point it out now, uh, although we could have pointed it out earlier, that there was a different minhag in the time of the Ha'inuch of how to read the parashiot, how to divide the parashiot. And obviously the Chinuch followed that minhag where Parashat Mishpatim was actually divided into two parashiyot. So you had, let's say, the beginning of Parashat Mishpatim, which is in Perich Aleph, Pasuk Aleph, and it would end in Perich Bet, Pasuk Gimal. And then a new parasha would start, and we'd read it the following Shabbat, and that parasha was called Parashat Im Kesef Talveh. And that would start in Perich Gimal, Pasuk Chav Dalid, and would end at the end of the parasha at Perich Chav Dalid, Pasuk Yud Chet. So that's an interesting point over here, that not everybody, not every community, broke up the parashiyot like we break it. You just see, Derech Agav, you know, in passing, he just says, like I said in parashat, uh, in Kesef Talbe. Furthermore, he doesn't tell us exactly where this mitzvah and when this mitzvah applies, I guess he's relying on what he wrote again in the 84th mitzvah when he discussed Shemitah the first time. So we'll just repeat it, that it's Noheget from the Torah 
the laws of Shemitah apply from the Torah only when Yovel is in play, and of course only in Eretz Yisrael. Uh, today, Shemitah applies in Eretz Yisrael Midrabanan, only from a rabbinical level. In Chutzla Ares, there is no Shemitah at all, even Midrabanan. Now it's important just to make one more note regarding ladies. What would be the law of ladies uh, in keeping Shemitah? And here we have a positive commandment. It's So then the She'ela would be, we have a rule that says, ladies are exempt. So I would refer to Shemitah as a positive commandment that's bound by time. It's a positive commandment. The land must rest. Um, and the Torah is telling you uh, uh, it's every seven years. So that's bound by time. So the She'ilah is, are ladies hayab in this? And clearly they are. And the question is, why? And one answer is that the laws of Shemitah are also written in a negative uh, there's also a lot to say regarding Shemitah. So therefore we know that whenever there's a mitzvah aseh that's backed up also by a lot to aseh, so ladies are going to be obligated in the law. Not from the aseh, but from the lot to aseh. And the Minhat Rinuch says a bigger hidush here. He says it's true. When it comes to positive commandments that are bound by time, ladies indeed are exempt. But that's only a mitzvah shebegufo. That's only a mitzvah that the person does on their body, wearing tefillin, wearing sisit. But a mitzvah that's got nothing to do with the body that's on the, that's on the world. Like the case of Shemitah, it's not on the person necessarily. It's on the earth. In such a case over there, uh, it does not apply uh, the rule of mitzvah tashesh azman geramah. And therefore, um, Shemitah ta'ares, uh, that he does not fulfill Bigufo, it's a law regarding the uh, land that he has to cease from working. So, therefore, even though it's a mitzvah, Asesha's Mangerama, writes, indeed, the ladies are going to be Hayabot. Again, today, Rabotai, it is a Shemitah year, so there is applicability to this in Eris Israel. Uh, there is applicability for those that are in Hutz Ta'ar, if you're getting product from Eris Israel this year. Or next year, when the stuff starts to come on the shelves, you'd have to just be uh, concerned to make sure that you're not uh, uh, transgressing, uh, benefiting from uh, Shemitah product that was not uh, handled according to the halakha. Okay. We're continuing our study of the Taryag Mitzvot, and we are at the 113th Mitzvah, and that's the negative commandment not to eat milk and meat. And that's referring to not to eat milk and meat that was specifically cooked together. As the Pasuk says, Lo tebashel gedi bachalev immo, which is in Periklam Medalid, Pasuk Chavav. And the Pasuk says, Lo tebashel gedi bachalev immo, not to cook it. Of course, the Gemara asks, why doesn't it just say, don't eat it? Which is really the Isur over here. So we learn from over here a very important halakha. That normally, whenever the Torah says not to eat something, it means only if you eat it, where you enjoy it. 
but if you would eat it in such a way where you don't receive any pleasure, you would not be transgressing the Torah law. Basar Bechalav is the exception. Since it does not say, Lo techilu basar Bechalav, the Torah is teaching you that even if you ate it in a way where you had no pleasure, for example, it was boiling, scalding hot, and you stuck it in your mouth and you burnt your throat by eating it. Clearly there's no benefit from that. Still, since the Torah does not say don't eat, even if there's no hana'ah, one is going to be hayav. Now actually, this lav is written three times in the Torah. It says three times, And we learn from over here, the Gemara says, three different isurim. Number one, Isur achilad, you're not allowed to eat milk and meat. Number two, there's an isur to cook milk and meat, even if you don't eat it, just the cooking itself is asur. And number three, isur hana'ah, that you're not allowed to derive pleasure. Now the Hinuch writes that even though it's written three times, we only counted as two lavim. In the count of 613, Lotevashil Gedi is two out of the 613, even though it's written three times. Because when it writes, uh, anytime something is forbidden by Achila, Achila and Hana'a go together. So therefore, that's combined in one. And therefore, although it's written three times, and we learn three different Isurim from it, however, it's counted as two Lavin, Achila and Hana'a are considered. Uh, in one. The shortage of this mitzvah, well, we did it already. Go look at what we said, he says, at mitzvah number 92, when we mentioned Basar Bechalab the first time. Now Rabotai, the Chinook, the very long piece, he writes for us over 10 different halachot that are unique to Basar Bechalab. First of all, he says, it only applies to behemat tehorah. From the Torah, it's only where you're cooking milk with a kosher animal. Furthermore, it does not apply only to behemat nat hayah. And also does not apply to off, to chicken. However, even if somebody were to cook chicken and milk together, although it's not asur from the Torah, it would be asur midrabbanan. Now, it's such a strict isud, eating milk and meat together, that the rabbis forbade even putting milk and meat at the, on the same table and eating together, even though you don't intend to eat both of them, but to sit at the same table that has milk and meat is also asud. Furthermore, they forbade you to eat milk after you ate meat. That's where we get the six-hour rule. That's not a Torah law. But these are all fences that the rabbis put against eating milk and meat from the Torah law. They even went so strict that even though we just said that milk and meat doesn't apply to birds and chickens, but they still were or said that if you ate meat, meaning chicken, you still should wait a certain amount of time before you have milk. However, they did not make their restriction on fish or grasshoppers. That is not considered meat at all. Furthermore, the famous law that applies to Basar Bechalab, which is called Hatikha Na'asa Nevela. In the abbreviation, we call that Hanan. What is Hanan? 
Hanan is that even though if you normally have a piece of meat, and let's say that piece of meat has in it, you infused in it a kezayit of chelev. Chelev is asur. The meat is kosher, but the chelev is isur. Now that piece of meat falls into a pot of kosher meat. So how much do you need in order to kosher that pot of meat in its entirety? So you need 60 against the chelev, which means the chelev that's in the kosher meat is the isur. So you need 60 times the chelev. And you could use the piece itself that the chelev is in as part of the 60. However, when it comes to basar b'halav, once a piece becomes basar b'halav, the whole piece becomes like a piece of nevela, which means we don't say that you only have to go against the milk or the meat. The whole piece becomes an isur. For example, it's like a piece of pig now. So therefore it falls into a pot. You need 60 against the whole piece and not just against what you're trying to negate. That's the law of hatichan na'asan nevela. Furthermore, the ashes of basar b'chalav are forbidden to benefit from, even if you burn it. Now you have ashes, the law says you have to burn it. Furthermore, the Torah only forbade milk from a live animal, but not milk from a dead animal. So therefore from the Torah law, it would be permissible to roast the udder of an animal with its milk in it. Even though it's milk and meat, but the milk now is coming from a dead animal, from the Torah, it's mutar. The rabbis forbade it, and therefore they said you have to uh, take out the milk, you have to extract it in a certain way before you eat it. But according to this law, we learn that milk that is found in the stomach, after the animal dies, that milk would not be subject the basar b'halav, for two reasons. Number one, it's called halav meta. It's halav that came after the animal died. And number two, any milk that is in the stomach of the animal, even if it's still liquidy, is called peresh be'alma. It's considered refuse. It's considered not milk anymore. It's considered decay, and therefore does not have a status of milk. Furthermore, he brings down that if a person cooks Milk with a shlil. What is the shlil? The embryo. So the embryo is still considered meat. However, if he cooks milk with either the skin or the sinew or the bones or the hoofs or the horns of the animal, that's not considered meat and therefore there's no isur. This law applies all places, all times, and applies to male and female alike. If somebody eats a kezayit of basar b'chalad that was cooked together, and he eats it b'mezid, he will get malkut. However, the chidush says a big chidush, that if a person has hana'ah from basar b'chalad, for example, he sells basar b'chalad for money, or even he gifts it to somebody, and therefore now he's owed a favor, so clearly he had hana'ah, he does not get malkut for that. Even though it's a sumana Torah, and even though he did a ma'aseh. The reason is because he has a rule. The rule is that any love that can be transgressed without doing a ma'aseh, even if you did a ma'aseh, you're not going to get malkut. 
and it is possible to transgress basar bechalav behanaa without doing a maaseh. Example, let's say somebody is heating up basar bechalav and the person goes and warms himself up by it. You didn't do a maaseh, you sit passively. And therefore you were neheneh. Even though you transgressed the Yisumina Torah, you didn't do a maaseh. So therefore even if you do a maaseh, the Inuk's rule is you will not get malkut in such a case. Again, Rabotai, you see how strict this Isur must be. If it starts off with cooking and it ends up with having to wait six hours between milk and meat, that shows you how many fences the rabbis built in order to preserve this very, very important love. Baruch Amen.